I find it fascinating to study the lives of a wide variety of people. I love to read biographies, uh, watch some biographies. They got some good ones on Netflix. And there's just something about trying to figure out what makes people tick. Why do they behave the way they do? Why do they hold these values? How do they handle life situations? And I'd imagine you probably share some interests like that. So maybe you're into like the diary of the wimpy kid. Okay. And you're trying to like what's going on with Greg Hefley. You have to read it to know what I'm talking about there. But uh, some other ones that I've uh, read, I have read some of the wimpy kids. It tells me what stage of life I'm in with my kiddos. But um, I've also like read biographies like on presidents, athletes. Uh, last month I read on Orville and Wilbur Wright, uh, First in Flight by McCullough. Fascinating to study their lives and what that all looked like. I also read a book on Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike, which was very interesting. But just whether you're reading about presidents like Reagan or Washington or Tony Dungy, athlete, coach, uh, Colin Powell, Marshall, uh, uh, Peter Marshall, Charles Spurgeon. There's something about trying to figure out why they are the way they are. How did how did they accomplish what they did? And I find myself asking questions like, what can I learn from these people? What did they do well? Where did they fail? How did they handle failure? Did they know Jesus? How well did they know him? What role did their faith in Christ have in their life? Or if there was no faith whatsoever in Christ, like in Phil Knight's case, how did that play out in his life and his values and his priorities? How did they handle obstacles? How did they handle failure? How did they overcome them? What did what can I learn about them? How did they deal with their family? How did they pass on a legacy? And you ask these questions. And that's because we'd love to know what motivates individuals. What are the convictions that they hold that led to some of the outcomes in their lives? And some people that I'm really interested in knowing are people that have walked with Jesus for a long period of time. There is something about their life that has like a joy in knowing Christ. They've gone through all sorts of struggles and heartaches. And yet there's a sweetness about their life. They kind of like glow. You just kind of see Jesus flowing through them. I'm really attracted to these people. I want to be like them someday. And I want to know what is it about their life that has led to these kind of results. When you come to the book of 2 Timothy, we are going to see the convictions that the Apostle Paul held. I tell you, as we've made our way through this book and you look at how God has used a man who was a Christ hater, a rejecter of Messiah and someone who actually oversaw the death of early Christians and then come to a place where he's trusting in Christ and God uses him some pretty amazing ways. And I'd like to know what were the values or the convictions that governed this man's life and how is it at the end of his life, he still has a single eye to God's glory And, you know, if you want to know the values and the convictions of a Christ-centered life, they are found in the passage we're looking at today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul's true north. If you want to have a mindset of following Jesus with joy, he spells it out. It's just like the Spirit of God gave us this great gift in these three verses. You need to know that the convictions that you hold will guide the life that you live. Or another way of saying it is this. The convictions that hold us mold us. So what is it for you? If you remember, as we've made our way through this book, last week we saw that the Apostle Paul commissioned Timothy and said, Listen, I solemnly charge you, I want you 
to preach the word. This is a commission that we've given given from the father and the son. And I want you to live your life with integrity. And you're going to face all sorts of difficulties and hardships. But he gets to verse 5 and he says, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and I want you to fulfill your ministry. If you are going to fulfill the ministry that God has called you in your family, at your place of work, in your school, you are going to need the convictions that he spells out in verses 6 through 8. And here we have the mindset of following Jesus with joy. So let's just take a look at the verses. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but he will award it to who? Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so we find in these verses the mindset of following Jesus with joy. Let me give you the first conviction of living a Christ-centered life, and that is to live your life with no reserve. Look at verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul literally saw his life as like being poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there were sacrifices like a burnt offering or a grain offering. And toward the end of this offering, the worshiper would pour out wine and he would pour it upon the sacrifice. And it was an expression of saying the worshiper finds joy in bringing this sacrifice to the Lord. It is a joy to pour this wine out as a sacrifice and worship to the Lord. And what Paul is saying is, I see my life this way. I'm living with no reserve, and I see my life being poured out like a drink offering, a drink offering of joy to God. This isn't the first time, by the way, he has referred to that. Uh, You will find, like in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says this, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. So he saw my investments in your life, my care for you, my shepherding of you, my bringing of the gospel. I want you to know, because I do it unto him, it is a drink offering. It is a sacrifice of joy to be poured out for you. And this only makes sense if you know Christ. You see, if you don't know Christ... You might go, yeah, I feel like my life is being poured out, but it's like it's being wasted. I don't even know what it's about. I don't even know what the purpose of life is. But when you come to understand Jesus as Savior, the one who's not only forgiven you of sins, but calls you into a deep, intimate relationship with himself, says, I don't want you going through life alone. I want you to know me and my goodness. All of a sudden, it starts to make sense to pour your your life out with no reserve, to see it as a drink offering. It's a joy. I also want you to know it's a challenge. Pouring your life out for the cause and the glory of the Savior sometimes is going to be difficult. You're going to face hardships and challenges. Paul did. If you want a preview of coming attractions, look at verse 16 in chapter 4. He said, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. You ever been totally abandoned? But look what he says. May it not be counted against them. Why is he not just bitter and enraged? 
because he has the mindset of seeing his life being poured out with no reserve. It's a drink offering. May it not be counted against them. And for Paul, here he is. He's sitting friendless in a dungeon. He's under the city of Rome. He is awaiting his execution. And yet he says, you know, I see my life even in these final drops as a drink offering to God. If he sees fit to have me in this dungeon facing execution, so be it. But my life is lived with no reserve to the glory of God. And you, you're pouring your life into someone or something. What is it? I tell you, it is so freeing just to see your life as like, I'm being poured out to the glory of God in all my relationships and all my circumstances and the work that he's given me to do. But it is a daily choice. You know, so often we feel like pulling back. But God is inviting us, just pour your life out. Let's see what I can do through you. You just devote your life to me. Say, God, okay, not much here, but I give what I, who I am to your purposes. And this is perhaps the great need in Christianity today. It's people who will live with this mindset of no reserve. There is just some sort of pull to kind of become like the incognito Christian. I will on Sunday morning identify with Jesus and maybe on Wednesday night. But beyond that, I'm just going to like be like a chameleon. I'm just going to match in to the environment. I don't want anybody really to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. What God is saying is through this text, see yourself as a drink offering. It's what's needed in our jobs, in our schools, on our teams, in our families, in our neighborhoods, are people that are just willing to identify with Jesus, not in obnoxious ways, but in glorious, gracious ways. And notice what Paul says. I see myself being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This word departure uh, is the word that is used to, like, loosen something. So, for instance, like a, uh, a ship, if it has tied the, the ropes on the moorings, are loosened so the vessel can sail away. That's our word here. Departure. The ship is about to sail. Paul says, you know, I see my life and I understand that I am just about ready to be loosened from this life and I'm going to sail on to the life of the come, to the glorious presence of Jesus. The time of my departure has come. It was also used of like pulling up tent stakes and the ropes that held up a tent. You ever heard of the phrase, hey, we're pulling up stakes? What does that mean? We're moving, right? We're pulling the stakes out of the ground because we're taking off. Paul says, that's my life. I'm just about ready to depart. And so it was. Church history holds that with a flash of a sword, the Apostle Paul made the ultimate sacrifice, that final drink offering. Um, he, He was allowed to be executed by sword because he was a Roman citizen. If you were not a Roman citizen and you were to be executed, uh, Romans generally crucified you. That's what we see with Jesus and, and those criminals. It was actually a pretty common scene in Rome, and they would do it in public places. But if you were a citizen, and the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, you were allowed to be executed by sword, and so it was. But I want you to see his life. It's being lived with this conviction, to live your life with no reserve. We have got to be done with the, I will serve God for two hours a, di- two hours a week mentality. To the idea that I I just want to see my life poured out for him. So, for instance, 
You will see this life of no reserve when you've got a willingness to serve others. When you realize God wants to move you from just being established to actually serving others. That there's more to what God wants for my life than just my just for me. He wants to do his work through me. You'll see it like in giving. You either start giving to the Lord's work as an expression of, of devotion and worship to him. Or you're like, Lord, how can I give more? And you take these steps. These are all expressions of just being poured out. And it really, it kind of begins this way. Something I find helpful. As soon as you kind of are cognizant that you're awake. And that may take 45 minutes and two cups of coffee for some of you. I don't know where you're at. But do this. Once you realize that you're awake and you got another day in front of you, say, Lord, who I am, I'm for you. I, I want to live my life for you and your glory. Lord, just, just do your work through me. Just some version of that where you're once again just presenting your life, you're seeing your life, and you're presenting it to the Lord. You see, the conviction that leads to having joy in Christ, a Christ-centered life, the first one you find in verse 6 is to live your life with no reserve. Let me show you the second. Look at verse 7. It is to live your life with no retreat. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Uh, no retreat. To retreat means it's the act or the process of withdrawing from something that is either difficult, dangerous, or disagreeable. And for the Apostle Paul, he actually spells out what does this life of no retreat look like? Well, first of all, it means to fight the good fight, the noble fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. Greek word for fight uh, is agonizomai. We get our word agony for. It was used of athletes who would literally pour out everything they had out on the field of competition. They agonized, and we get it. There was effort. There was the expenditure of energy. In fact, they expended themselves. And Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Clearly, this is done in the strength and the grace of the Lord. But he says, I want you to know, I have finished. I have fought the good fight. You know, sometimes before people pass away, they start deeply thinking about people they've invested in. Seeing how God has used them. Teachers see the faces of former students, doctors and nurses, of patients that they've cared for and invested in. Politicians and the legacies they've left. Parents, the faces of their children or their grandchildren or maybe even their great-grandchildren. Pastors think of uh, people they've shepherded and invested and they pray that they would love Jesus fully and they would follow his word. Missionaries think of how God may have used them as an outpost in some foreign land to just once again, like a lighthouse and a beacon of light, to share and to show the love of Jesus. Christians, think about how God used them for kingdom causes. And Paul says, I want you to know that I fought the good fight. For him, it had been about a 30-year marathon from the time he began his faith in Christ until about now. And any fight is going to require energy, and it's going to be difficult. Do you remember in the book of 2 Corinthians, um, Paul had been under amazing attack. People were tearing up, criticizing him, uh, slandering him. They were challenging his credentials, challenging his commitment. And so the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God had him write of some of his experiences, of what it looked like to live with no retreat, to fight the good fight. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, in following, he says this, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times 
I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Think of that. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I tell you, if you're a spiritual leader, there are times because of the burdens and the challenges and the heartaches, you just don't sleep at night. He says, I've been through many sleepless nights. I've been in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That concern is sometimes like this weight. And what he's saying is like, I want you to understand, I have fought the good fight. And you're like, oh man, I don't want any part of that. When you know Jesus and you see him for who he is, and when you hear his call, follow me, there is no greater cause to give your life to than to follow Jesus. The only reason why Paul would endure all of these hardships and difficulties, internal and external, is because he saw the loveliness of Christ and he was trusting in Jesus. And it was Christ and the power of his presence that empowered him and strengthened him and had him continue to take that next step forward. And so Paul says, I have fought the good fight. And, you know, sometimes we look at the Apostle Paul and go like, man, you know, he's in another category. Like, I cannot relate. And granted, is there anybody here that's ever been beaten for their faith? Oh, wow, we have no takers this time. Okay. So you're like, I don't get that. But I want you to know that the fight was just more than some of these physical hardships. His fight was a lot like our fight. It was a fight to live physically and mentally pure. And keep your emotional passions in check. It was a fight against the world's encroaching anti-God values. It was a fight against untruth and error and superstition. It was a fight uh, to just keep moving forward in his deteriorating body. I mean, anybody having some like bodily breakdown, you know? Well, guess what? So did he. It was bad. Probably was partially blind. He had physical ailments. Serious issues. He had a fight just like ours. It was a fight against Judaizers and paganism and legalism and unholiness in the church and a fight to defend the faith and a fight to protect it and a fight to share the gospel and a fight to make disciples because after all, he could have just like, well, I'm just going to focus on making tents. Yeah, he made tents, but guess what? He also invested in the lives of people. And then, of course, he had a fight just like we do, a fight against discouragement and despair. I mean, remember he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I despaired of even life itself. The depression was so deep that he wrote that. Chapter 7, I think it's like verse 6, he, he talks about that. He actually just says it. I am depressed. God who comforts the depressed comforted us with the coming of Titus. All of these difficulties that all call us to just kind of uh, move into retreat. Paul says, you know, somehow by the grace of God, I got through them. Those are fights that you and I face too, Right? I mean, sometimes it is good just to get through the day and the night. But praise God, his mercies are new every morning. And he says, I have fought the good fight. The urge is always to fall back. But Paul had a conviction. He had a mindset. I'm living my life with no retreat. I'll tell you, personally, uh, going through trials and difficulties, it makes you more patient and more understanding with people. God uses every difficulty in our life 
And you might feel like, you know what? I think I'm ready to give up the fight. God is through this text saying, listen, fight the good fight. Keep going forward. Fighting the good fight, he says, he, right after that, no retreat also means finishing the course. You see that in verse 7? I have finished the course. I have completed the course of my life. No one picks the race. You do not pick the journey you are on. Not even the Apostle Paul. God, in his sovereignty and his goodness, has a course that we are to run. We choose whether we're going to be active in it or not, or we're going to just kind of sit on the sidelines. But God has a course for us to run. And you might be surprised, I certainly have been, that it's how difficult it can be. Like, these are huge obstacles. These are great challenges. This is way beyond me. All of that's by divine design to get you and I to trust him, to wean us off our own resources, to believe the gospel, to trust in him. And he will see us through. And he wants us to finish the course. He gives us what we need. Sometimes it's just kind of like an hourly basis. And for Paul, I mean, think about his course. I mean, he knew the final destination, to be home with the Lord. And he talked a lot about it. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. But his journey was rather horrendous. I mean, it had horrific turns, a few treacherous sinkholes. And here he is at his final hours. He's totally abandoned. He's underground in a dungeon. And he knows he's going to face execution. And yet, he says, I have finished the course. I've been thinking about those words. I have finished the course. Remember Jesus? He's on the cross. Remember, darkness came down for three hours and literally he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Literally, God took his just wrath and poured it on his son, the perfect, sinless lamb of God. And at the end of the three hours, there wasn't a whimper of a man on his last breath. It was the cry of the living God who said, what? It is finished. I accomplished the purpose for which I came, and that is to bring about the redemption of mankind, to be a propitiation, to be the satisfaction of God's just wrath against sin. I'm paying it in my life so that those who believe in me can have forgiveness of life. And he said what? It is finished. I ran the course. I did what I was sent to do. That's what Paul is saying. You know what? I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the course. It is step by step where God has you right now. No retreat means finishing the course that God has set before you. And you do it in him, through him, with him, and for him. And uh, I've done some running in my life, not overly successful. But enough to know this. The race isn't over until you cross the finish line. The race isn't over until you cross the finish line. Paul is saying, you know what? I feel like I'm on my last steps. I like the last drops of the drink offering. I'm on the last steps of the race. I have finished the course. You know, when you're running, uh, sometimes it is like pure elation, like the first 10 steps. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, I feel really good, you know? And then it all starts to sink in. And then, and, and there's sometimes during a race where it's painful and your body is breaking down. Maybe you're doing a 5K and a guy pushing a stroller with his grandkids and it passes you. Like, oh, it's like, I'm giving up now. You know what I'm saying? Please, no pictures. And sometimes it's so challenging and so difficult. And there may be occasions where you literally stumble and fall. But I want you to know something. The race isn't over until you cross the finish line. 
You may be here and you have, you're not even on the track. You are so far off. You're not even sure how you got through these doors. Someone put you in a canoe and you showed up here. I want you to know that God's not done with you. He intends to accomplish his work through you. Don't give up. Finish the course. What does God in front of, have in front of you? If you say, man, it's all difficult and it's de- terrible and I've made a huge mess of things, that's okay because God's in the equation. Finish the course. And that's what Paul was saying. You know, God intends to use you where you're at and to accomplish his work through you. But you've got to have the mindset of, listen, I'm living with no retreat. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have, look at verse 7, I have kept the faith. No retreat means keeping the faith. The faith is like he talks about like in Jude 3 where it's like the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. It is the scriptures. It is the body of doctrine and truth that God has given to humanity so that we will believe him, trust him, put our faith in his son and live for his glory. And Paul says, I have kept the faith. How do you and I keep the faith? Well, you do it just like Paul. You keep the faith by living it. Trusting in Christ, walking with him, enjoying him, serving him. You keep the faith by living it, and you keep the faith by giving it away. If you're going to keep the faith, you must give it away. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 2? He says, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you're going to keep the faith, you've got to pass it on. You pass it on to your kids, your grandkids. You make yourself intentional with relationships in your life. There are plenty of opportunities in the church. There are all sorts of opportunities outside the walls of the church. But what you want to do is pass on the faith because that's how you keep it. You live it and you, you pass it on to others. And that's what Paul is saying. I have kept the faith. You're going to find that if you're in a situation where you're just always holding back, you're in retreat, you can't lose your eternal salvation if you've truly trusted in Christ, but you can lose your present effectiveness. And if you're like been in retreat for some time, like you're here today and you're like, how in the world did God know that I am in full on retreat? Man, I am totally holding back. I am the complacent Christian. God wants you to understand you don't lose your eternal life. You may lose your present effectiveness, but he wants that to change. How? By changing your convictions to live your life with no reserve and no retreat. And I want to give you an amazing promise. Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul writes this, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion or to perfection in Christ Jesus. If God has started the work, you've trusted in his son, you got an assurance that he is planning to bring you to the fullness of maturity. And that comes with this conviction to live your life with no reserve and no retreat. Let me give you the final conviction of a Christ-centered life. It's, it's found in verse 8. And that is to live your life with no regret. It is to live for the future. It is to live for it with an eye to Jesus and his glory. Look at this, verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all those who have loved his appearing. You see, if you've got the right passion and the right pursuits, that all comes because you're focused on the right prize. 
Right passion, right pursuits? Why? Why would I have those? Because you're focused on the prize of Christ and his glory. Look what he says in verse 8. In the future. He's not just living for the here and now, but he sees there is an eternal perspective to life. It's like life in this lifetime is but a dot on the line of eternity. There is far more to come. He says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And here that word crown, Stephanos, if your name is Stephen, it means crown. And what they would do for uh, dignitaries or victors, athletic victors, is they would put a laurel wreath on their head. And it happens still today. I mean, you probably recognize some of those characters from the Olympics. And you're like, wow, why are they wearing plants on their head? This is, a, this is something that goes all the way back to the Greek Olympic Games. The Romans carried it on. It's the idea that you are valuable. You have won. You have got the crown. You got this laurel wreath on your head. And if you won like uh, a significant game uh, or like the Olympic Games or a significant event, you were an athletic hero. In some cities, what they would do is they'd punch a hole in the wall. They put in this bronze plate and they would put your name on it. And furthermore, there would be for the rest of your life, you would never pay taxes. And you would also there would be different merchants in town that would provide for the rest of your life resources that you need, not only for you, but for your family. All of that is because you were a victor. You had worn this laurel wreath on your head. So you ever heard of the phrase, well, that guy or that gal is resting on their laurels. That's where it came from. They were the victor and there was provisions that came with it. I want to tell you something. God is going to place this like wreath on our life, on our head. And it is the crown of righteousness. But this is the catch. You and I don't deserve it. It is unearned, unmerited. It is the righteousness of Christ that we are crowned with. And and this happens because Christ lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the law's demands. He was absolutely perfect in every respect. He pays the penalty for sin and he rises again. And according to the gospel, if you and I believe in Jesus, we receive all of his righteousness. And one day it'll be demonstrated that we're like crowned with righteousness. I try to imagine what this looks like because I absolutely do not deserve his righteousness. I'm a miserable failure. I'm a sinner. That's true before Christ. I've sinned plenty of times since I placed my faith in him. You relate. And then God places this crown of righteousness. It's it's already true of me because I believe in the gospel. It's not because I'm good. It's because God is great and he's a saving God. He gives me his righteousness. And one day, I think it's just going to be like overwhelming to see the amazing resting in Christ's laurels. It is the laurels of christ it is the crown of christ's righteousness and he says the day is coming and for me he says it's soon which the lord the righteous judge is going to award to me on that day and i don't want you to miss this and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing speaking of his first coming but really placing more emphasis on his second coming you love christ You love that he came the first time and you cannot wait for him to return. And this is the key. I I hope you underline it in the Bible. It is to all who have loved his appearing. And friends, this is the secret. This is what makes the Christian life a joy. Loving Jesus. 
And he says, everyone who loves his appearing is going to have this experience. You will find that a love for Jesus comes when you have the life of Jesus. So before I was a Christian, did I love Jesus? No, of course not. Neither did you. But once you saw the goodness and the grandeur of Jesus and this one who paid the penalty for your sins and you see yourself for who you are, wretched and sinful, and you see the glories of the Savior who redeems you and washes you and cleanses you and calls you friend and brings you into his family and loves you eternity and gives you all these promises and is with you and blesses your life beyond measure, what happens is you love him because you see him and you become thankful and giving and sharing and, and pouring out your life just makes sense because of the loveliness of the Savior. And that's what Paul is doing now. He sees, I'm living for the future rewards of being in his presence. And that is in direct contrary to how most people live. Most people on this earth live for the here and now. We want our rewards, trophies, uh, medals. We want them now. I mean, we're passing out medals. You don't even have to win anything. You can come in last place. We're going to give you a medal at this point. Okay, because we are living that way. We just we want the medal. We don't, may not mean anything, but that's kind of what we're after. God says, listen, I want you to live with an eternal perspective. The crowns, they're coming. The awards, they're coming. I remember meeting a guy, we were talking about kind of pursuits in life, and um, he told me that his ultimate goal was to have a building named after him. And I'm like, really? I mean, you just, you want to build it? Yeah. And his whole life is directed toward that. How interesting. You see, there's going to be so many people that are in life, and they are scaling the ladder. And they're working super hard. And they're going to find that at the end of the life, they scaled the wrong building. They climbed the wrong ladder. Because friends, what you want to do is set your sights on Jesus. Worship him, know him, and serve him. And so, friends, if you want to do that with joy, to follow Jesus with joy, you want to have these convictions. Live your life with no reserve, no retreat, no regret. You see... The convictions we hold guide the life that we live. You want to see a, a person that has regret? Well, just keep reading. Look at verse 9 and 10. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What happened? Demas just came enamored with the things of this world, and the things of Christ just grew strangely dim. You and I need to live today in a way that we will not regret tomorrow. And so we have this text. And we need it. These verses are so critically important to me, and I need to review them. There's a reason why I've memorized them, because I am selfish and self-centered. I have a propensity to want to live for myself. And I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room can relate to that. God is calling us to know the fullness of joy in Jesus. That's why this is the mindset of following Jesus with joy. No reserve, no retreat, and no regret. And if you are off track or off course, like you are really off course, aren't you glad that God is gracious right now, today? He's calling you, trust me, come back, believe in me, follow me. We will clean up the mess, but we'll do it together. But I want you to see what I can do through you. So maybe when you start considering what is your next step, maybe it's to believe the gospel. Maybe it is to say, Lord, I'm coming back to you this morning. Perhaps it's to just start being involved in God's work. We have a ministry expo taking place. You want to find opportunities to serve and invest in the lives of others? We've got it. 
Uh, maybe it's to start giving. Maybe it is to give more with your finances. But what you want to do is see your life as living with no reserves, no retreat, and no regret. Friends, this is true north. This is the mindset of living with joy in Jesus. In 1904, there was a guy by the name of William Borden uh, that graduated from high school. Uh, the Borden family, some of you are familiar with it, very wealthy dairy family. Uh, when uh, William graduates from high school in 1904, his family gives him a graduation present of a trip around the world for a year. Okay? What a gap year. When I graduated from high school, my family gave me a suitcase. Okay? William Borden, he got himself a world trip. Okay, but we both got gifts, so I'm not complaining. Okay, so William Borden, he travels around the world, and he is deeply burdened by all the lost people he sees, especially in, in East Asia and in China. And uh, he's, he's really consumed by this. These people are just literally lost. So when he comes back from his worldwide vacation, uh, his family had all set it up for him to go to Yale. He gets a brilliant education at Yale. And he follows that up by going to Princeton Seminary. This was uh, when it was conservative and on fire and teaching truth. And he gets a great education there. And while he is in seminary, he believes that God has called him to be a missionary, to actually go and share the gospel and invest in the lives of people in China, specifically these Muslim Chinese that he had seen that were so very lost. And so while he's at school, he writes at the back of his Bible, he writes the words, no reserves. Well, uh, he announces this to his family, that God has called him to go to China. And he's thinking that his family's going to be pretty excited about that, but actually they were unhappy, to put it mildly. What do you mean? No way. Listen, you're going to have Jesus on the side, but we, need, we want you in the family business. Come on, think about it, man. You can have it lucrative. He was already a millionaire at this point, and he's just a kid. And they want him to continue on in the family business, but he is absolutely convinced that God has called him to the mission field. This is his unique calling. Not to say that you couldn't be a dairy farmer or running a dairy business. It's just that God has called him to do this and his family wouldn't have anything to do it. Uh, he actually starts liquidating his assets. So he gives, he gives away to missions $500,000, which is the equivalent in, in, our, in today's money at $12.3 million dollars. And then he continues to start giving. And at the age of 23, he becomes a trustee at the Moody Bible Institute. And after he pretty much gives away all of his wealth, at the back of his Bible, under no reserves, he writes this word, no retreat. And so at age 23, he is ready to go to China. And he gets on a ship that, settles, uh, that sails off and it's going to stop in Cairo, Egypt, and then make its way to China but that stop in Cairo, Egypt, proves to be fatal. While he is there, he contracts cerebral meningitis. And within a month, he is dead. While he is languishing away, trying to get to China, but watching his life literally just dissipate in front of him, he writes in the back of his Bible, under no reserves, no retreat, he writes this, no regrets. When William Borden passes away, when they're kind of collecting his things, someone actually goes through his Bible and sees at the back of his Bible, he's written these words, the convictions of a Christ-centered life, no reserves, 
No retreat. No regrets. In Egypt, there is apparently, you go through an alley, there's garbage everywhere, and it'll take you to a little cemetery. And in the back of the cemetery, there is a tomb, and it's the tomb of William Borden. And it says, William Borden, 1887 through 1913. He dies at age 26. And there is an inscription on the stone, and here's a picture of it. And at the very bottom, these are the words. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You see, he had convictions. The convictions that Apostle Paul articulated right here in verses 6, 7, 8. And they are the convictions that we are to hold. If you want to live with the mindset of having joy in Christ, it comes from living with no reserves, no retreat, and no regrets. His freeing to live your life fully for the glory of God. For after all, the convictions that we hold guide the life that we live. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. Right here, black and white, three verses, you spill out the convictions of a, of a life where Jesus is at the center. Past, present, future, just all wrapped up in him. And for someone who has come here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus... They're aware of their sinfulness, their lack of direction, their need for peace. Would they simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. I believe the gospel. I trust in Jesus, the perfect one, the resurrected one. And I ask that you'd lead my life. And Lord, for all of us who are here that do know you, Lord, continue to shape these values in our lives. That we might honor you. We'd see ourselves just being poured out with no reserve. We're not in retreat, and we're not living with any regrets, for we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.